0: Highly anticipated cybersecurity regulations are hitting mile 21 in a marathon of rulemaking. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is very close to finalizing sweeping cyber incident reporting requirements for critical infrastructure operators. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday brings us the latest. And Justin, where exactly is CISA on this rulemaking? And tell us what it would apply to.
1: Yes, CISA is... Finishing the notice of proposed rulemaking for the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. That was the news from CISA Director Jen Easterly last week at the Billington Cybersecurity Summit in Washington. Easterly says the notice should be out later this year or early next year. And that would actually put CISA ahead of the March 2024 deadline uh, for this notice to go out that is in the law. So clearly they're moving with some pace here. Uh, You know, that legislation passed last year was a big deal. It will require critical infrastructure entities across all 16 critical sectors to report cyber incidents to CISA within 72 hours of discovering them. But first, CISA has to go through this really complex rulemaking process where they define some key terms, such as what organizations are actually required to report cyber incidents within those critical sectors and then what kind of incidents rise to the level of being required to be reported. Uh, Those are just a couple of the things that will come out as part of this rulemaking process. And then there will be a comment process and the rules actually don't have to go into effect until September 2025, according to the law. It'll be very interesting to see if CISA tries to shift that up a little bit or not as part of this rulemaking. And
0: when they get this information from industry, what do they want to do with it?
1: That's a key question here. It's something that CISA has sketched out a little bit, but there will be more information in the rulemaking. One key thing here is getting a critical infrastructure organization to report cyber a cyber incident allows CISA to then help that critical infrastructure organization if they need assistance uh, responding to the hack or whatever it might be. Another thing that CISA hopes to do is is share information about a cyber incident that might affect other organizations so they can quickly either patch or somehow defend themselves from being affected or figure out if they also maybe were hacked by a similar exploit. Lauren Bose-Hayes is Senior Advisor for Technology at CISA. She discussed those two scenarios, but also that this data will help CISA uncover deeper cybersecurity trends across the nation where right now do we look to for our sort of source of truth on trends in cybersecurity we don't have a super clear answer to that right we we try certainly But we've got a lot of different vendors telling us different information about what they're seeing, but that's obviously, you know, directed a lot by the types of tooling that they own and the types of insight that they have. Similarly, you've got different agencies with different levels of insight. And so I am really excited to have sort of a centralizing function around cyber incident reporting data to be able to then put some of that information out to the public, out to the entities who are reporting, out to the sectors, etc.
0: And again, that's Laura Bose-Hayes, Senior Advisor for Technology at CISA. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And the other incident reporting requirements across government, do they have a way to mesh and kind of harmonize all of that? with these new rules coming from CISA?
1: That's the goal. Uh, you know, a lot of officials are saying uh, you know, this harmonization uh, issue is, is such a major issue for both government and industry alike. It actually came to the forefront earlier this month. Uh, House Homeland Security members uh, sent a letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission really uh, lambasting the, the SEC over new rules cyber incident reporting rules that they say conflict with the incident reporting requirements under development at CISA. And so there are different regulatory agencies that have the power to also implement cyber incident reporting rules. The SEC rules would of course apply to public companies only, But, you know, there's this overlap that's happening. Hayes says CISA is looking to harmonize incident reporting processes to the greatest extent that it can, CISA can. The law allows CISA to sign these interagency agreements to share incident reports with other agencies. And CISA is also building a web-based portal to be kind of a singular singular way to share incident reports. So they're hoping to streamline this as much as
0: possible. All right. And then CISA is not the only agency making rules and regulations. For cybersecurity, we've got the long ingestion cybersecurity maturity model certification CMMC from the Defense Department. What the heck is going on there? Where are they in rulemaking?
1: Yeah, it's really the second ingestion after this DOD kind of coughed it up the first time. But, you know, <laughs> DOD submitted the CMMC rulemaking package to the White House earlier this summer. And once implemented, that program will, of course, allow DOD to require an assessment, a third-party assessment of a defense contractor's compliance with NIST security controls. Matthew Travis is the chief executive of the nonprofit Cyber Accreditation Body. That's the organization that will oversee these third-party assessments. He says the rulemaking will likely be out of the White House and available for DOD to publish before the end of the calendar year. We expect it to come out for public comment
0: November-December time frame, and then industry will have a chance to respond to that. And then DOD will have to adjudicate those comments, and we'll see. We we're hopeful that CMMC will actually go live sometime in 2024, probably the back end of 2024. Well, they can always hope. And is there going to be strong pushback once again? I mean, industry is not all that cool with CMMC and hasn't been from the outset.
1: Yeah, well, this is why DOD really revised the program uh, almost two years ago. The initial program was going to require just about every contractor that handles any form of controlled, unclassified information to get one of these third-party assessments. Now, DOD has kind of split it, where if you have less sensitive uh, information, then you Maybe you, you can just continue to do the self-attestation, but there will be a, a pretty strong subset of tens of thousands of contractors that still need to get the third-party assessment. DOD also built in things like, uh, you know, the, the contractors are able to kind of punt on some requirements if they can prove they have a plan to implement them. So they, they put more flexibility into the program. John Sherman is DOD's chief information officer. He also spoke about CMMC at the Billington Cyber Summit. This has been a lot of work to get CMMC right. We think a lot about how this looks from the other side here, implementing 800-171 NIST standards, particularly for small and medium businesses. That's where our heart was going into this, making sure this is implementable. We tried to simplify it a bit, not making it overly burdensome. But having cybersecurity for our DIB that's working with CUI is non-negotiable. We've got to get this right. And that's John Sherman, DOD's CIO, talking about the CMMC program.
0: All right, so there is a lot cooking here, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And later this hour, we'll hear from NIST as it updates its cybersecurity framework. Up next, TSA launches updated approaches to a never-ending program of passenger screening. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
1: Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of
2: integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure, mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted? the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people, because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility, both as a union leader and as a pastor, to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair, with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, So I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those
2: two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to Feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events, widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chance that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. The they are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can
2: explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the- Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right, treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's
2: always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks different energy it's it's always straightforward yes. honest. here's the truth yes and it's it's easy yes right? yes it's a lot easier than having multiple personas absolutely
3: yeah absolutely
2: what's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career
3: you know i don't know you asked for one but i'm i'm gonna have to elaborate on two Yeah. that's yes. okay Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part, okay? I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person—you mentioned your parents before—is mm-hmm. um, there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today?
3: It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith